See, Marvel films are like made by adults who know how to have fun, and the DC films are like made by teenagers who want to be like adults. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Talking During the Movie, the show where two jackoffs talk about new movies and movie news. I'm Mike. And I'm James. And this is episode number 5555, uh, which we have titled Mike and James and the Giant Peach. Woo! We we finally got an episode with your name in the title and then with my name in the title now. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, and also Giant Peach. That's been a goal of mine for a while, so I'm glad we finally managed to get it in there. So I mean, before we had Magic Mike and James, which is pretty good, and we we wanted to use for this one, but uh, we already did. <laughs> uh, when we used it, did we use Magic Mike and James XXL? No, we didn't. Well, then that's still on the table for a future episode. That's so. true. Yeah, Magic Mike and James XXL. When we <laughs> run out of ideas. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll just we'll just uh, you know flip through different sizing configurations uh, until we are off the air. <laughs> what what air? I don't know. But I don't know. Off it. Today we are going to review Inside Out, Cannibal Holocaust, Brooklyn, and Silence of the Lambs. I like uh, the sound of that. <laughs> wow. Uh, no, we're not going to review those movies that no, have nothing no, to do with each other. No, this is an episode that we would like to dedicate to highlighting uh, and discussing some of the films. Uh, and by some of, I mean there's only four films that the studio has created. Um, so half the films. Uh, half the films of the uh, animation studio Leica. Um, the uh, film... Uh, their newest film, which has just been released, that would make it the newest. I that that was redundant. Wow, um, <laughs> Kubo and the Two Strings, uh, which will uh, be the crux of our uh, uh, of our podcast. That'll be our main segment, and then uh, we're bringing back a third segment for the first time in I don't know how long has it been months. But, well, actually, no, because we did the interview. <laughs> That's right, we did the interview, but that was the first time in like months. So yeah, so uh, we're back on it. We're trying to get back in the swing, and uh, we're going to talk about The Box Trolls, which is their second to newest film. Uh, came Box out Trolls. Came out in 2014 and uh, was up for Best Animated Feature, but lost to Big Hero 6, which James is clearly a huge fan of. <laughs> I love it. I gotta say, it's it's not saccharine and cliche and unoriginal and overrated at all. Hey, dude, it's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Those <laughs> I are, forgot about that. Those movies are all flawless. <laughs> uh, you know, that comes to, I just got my first really vitriolic comment on an article that I wrote on Film School Rejects. Those things always really excite me. And this guy was just it, it, my my article dared to make the bold claim that Batman in 2016 hasn't really been well represented. And 
Yeah, yeah, that that was my my argument, flawed mean, though it may be, I, and that I, I thought it was a great time to release a movie like uh, Batman: Return of the Caped Crusaders, which is a new animated Batman film coming out starring Adam West and Burt Ward, just like the original Batman film. Sorry, not film series, TV series. I'll tell you what. If you if you want to get vitriol, I don't I don't think you're going to get a group of people more angry at you than if you praise the Adam West Batman in the era of uh, post in, in the post Nolan era, um, which is cr- which is crazy to me because to, I you can have it both I, ways. I, you can absolutely have it both ways. I think that there's a lot of bitterness. And resentment among uh, comic book fans, particularly Batman fans, who feel like the property is too valuable to not take seriously, um, or you know, to you know, they have to sap all the fun and the camp out of it. They're like so sensitive about the '60s Batman show without realizing that a that was that's probably the reason anyone fucking knows who Batman is today. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but it. I mean, that kept him in the cultural sphere for uh, at least another two decades. And uh, and also, the, the show is actually kind of a great piece of pop art. I really, like, I think it's great. It, it It's coming out in the 60s, which is that era of, like, you know, Andy Warhol, of bright colors, of, like, consumerist imagery being used for high art purposes. And I honestly think that Batman, the series, kind of fits into that schema. And it's kind of brilliant. And you could do a lot of like cool postmodern shit with it, but it's also just a fuck ton of fun. And I, I don't know when the idea came that you can't love the Nolan films and that you uh, uh, and love the Adam West Batman uh, simultaneously. Like, well, the, it, the question could, can go even further, and that's like, it's not that you can't. Well, why is it that you can't love the? these DC animated films, the Batman films, the Nolan films, and not also like Marvel films. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and because not, not only did this person say he wanted to choke me for writing this article, which yeah. I thought was funny, uh, he uh, ended it with, and hey. fuck Marvel. And fuck Marvel. Yeah, why fuck, like, yeah, why Marvel can't both ha- of these... Fuck Marvel for having a good time. Yeah, I don't know. And look... I've one. I'm I'm not a paid film critic, so fuck anyone who says I'm paid off for saying yeah, these things. Where the fuck? I'm, I want my I want my swimming pool. I <laughs> I like I like Civil War. Where is my swimming pool? Yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just a Batman fan who wants them to be good. And and not only that, I feel like I especially on mo- really big tentpole movies of Marvels like The Avengers. I've been more critical than most people about it. I honestly. Really? think the Avengers is vastly overrated. I said I, it then, and I, I'll say it now. I mean, look, you're going to shit on Big Hero 6. Um, rightfully or wrongfully so. I don't think it's that bad of a film, but definitely warrants some criticism, especially if it's going to be named the best animated feature of that year. Which Exactly, yeah. If it if it sets know. itself up like that, it's going to better, better be able to take when people say, no, that's not quite it. And right. no, honestly, no, the film is not that. It's not It's not bad at all. It's yeah. It's pretty, as I said, it, it's saccharine and cliche, but that's fine. I, I also find it particularly funny that they end it with a speech about how we didn't choose to become heroes, despite the fact that they literally chose to become heroes and how they would become heroes. So, hey. Yeah. Yeah, um, 
sorry, I was I totally got distracted by something for a moment. Um, I so yeah, I I never got the. I I also just think like the word camp has become such a taboo for any for comic book films now, which is insane to me because while it is great that you know we you know our culture treats these characters with more seriousness and more complexity now the idea that we forget where they came from and just pretend like you know costumed heroes are completely within the realm of realism and gritty crime drama is i think also kind of getting away from the point no, it is. I mean, these are these are Greek. These are modern day Greek gods. Why can't we tell fun stories with them? Why can't we do <laughs> cool things with them? And, and honestly, in a year where Batman has been sodomized, because I think that people are only like it, it's become a, a caricature of what Christopher Nolan and honestly Tim Burton, because he was the first. Well, Frank Miller, let's go and, even and, further back. Yeah, yeah, Frank Miller, Tim Burton, you know, they, they, they envisioned a darker Batman, and they delivered, and they, they gave us a compelling character. It's and Every single representation of Batman this last year, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you, it's, it's been like a, a sick caricature of this darker version of Batman to the point where you have to kind of wonder what the point even is anymore. It's all like, I, like I'm kind of craving for the camp now because it's, it seems to be the only thing with any sincerity or, you know, any, you know, meaning left to be mined in it. And that's kind of the one thing that we're missing. And you know, when you sent me the link to Batman, and uh, the Cape Crusader, I honest to God did not expect what I got. I know. I saw this. Bat- I was like, "Oh, a, a, a new trailer for a Batman animated movie? Cool!" Yeah. That's I, a- I, I, Whoa. Was, I, I actually didn't want to even watch it because I, I, I just thought, "Well, the Killing Joke was such a bust. You know what's <laughs> what's the next uh, what's the next graphic novel they're going to right? They're going to exactly like I, I didn't feel like watching it, and then I it was Adam West and Burt Ward." And so, somehow that felt like a tonic. That just seems to remedy something that was like fundamentally missing in these movies. So, well, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a breath of fresh air. Like seriously, everyone is going so dour with their portrayals of this character, and it's it's it, I'm getting sort of fatigued with right. it, especially with as you said the the caricature of of Batman's characters represented in the Zack Snyder. DC Extended Universe. It's it's tiring. Well, and we've talked we've talked about um, we've talked about how Christian Bale plays Bruce Wayne, particularly in uh, Batman Begins. I think we agree was the strongest representation of that character. And he no. also was no. Well, I would say yes, and until the, of course the end part. But yeah, no, no, no. I mean, like Bruce Wayne. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And he has fun with it. It's obviously a serious role, but there's some, you know, there's some variance of tone in there. There's a, an actual person, and occasionally he'll crack a joke. Occasionally he'll be the playboy, and obviously, yeah, he's putting on an act. But there's there's also a humanity there. You know, it's it's not. I don't know. It's not as stiff or you know stilted or boring as the you know the worst of the modern representations go so yeah i for christ's sake make batman a human again 
this is this is why Spider-Man's always been my favorite hero because even in the worst representations of it, Spider-Man is is fundamentally a vulnerable human character, and there's no there's no getting away from that. You can't make a super dark and gritty Spider-Man. <laughs> I, I don't care, or, 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 or even if you do, you can't take that fundamental humanity away from the character. It's just it's inseverable from from who he is. It's just a part of the it, it's DNA. So that's what I've always liked about it. He's not a Greek god. He's you know a very vulnerable character and that's what I think uh, more of these films need is an actual fucking sense of humanity for Christ's sake well yeah no, and, and I I said this in my article but I I like the darker portrayals of Batman especially in the comic yeah. books it, it, it basically ripped his character wide open and said like right. okay now we're gonna really explore what this guy is about that that being said when you take it to such extremes that it has been you you lose any sense of who he actually is so a film like this are reminding us where he came from throwing it back to, even, to way back when saying this is how we got here not not all this bullshit like yeah, this I, I, is the what started it all like that's great yeah and i don't even think it's a problem that they're they're taking it to an extreme i think they're just re- i think they're just being reductive i think they're reducing it to exactly its, yeah they're, they're they're taking the uh they're taking the the emotional tone but they're not they're not picking apart the nuances of the character underneath it. And they're not really understanding what they have there. They don't understand the property, the incredibly valuable property that, that you know Warner Brothers has the rights to currently. They, they only see dark and brooding and tortured and, you know, gritty superhero. And that's what they think people like right now. It, it feels like it's playing into a market trend. Well, yeah, no, it absolutely and is. It is. And that's like, another thing like, I pointed out, that, like, Christopher Nolan films also sort of changed superhero movies. They, they established the market trend. Like, that's what's, you know... Well, they I, were the first ones that made, like, a mega profit. And so yes. then everything was like, oh, okay, we just need to do that, do you that. know? And, I mean, look, this is not Christopher Nolan. Look, every, every film that's successful, uh, that's kind of a sleeper hit, and uh, Dark Knight... It's not fair to call it. That wasn't a sleeper hit. It was a blockbuster through and through. But I think it had a cultural resonance that not a whole... Like, I wasn't prepared for how big that film was going to be culturally. Um, Assuming it wasn't prepared for an Oscar win. Exactly. And the thing is, those kinds of films always are fundamentally a Pandora's box. They, They recreate the box office in their own image and then... You know, we we are then cursed with years of the studios trying to recreate that, and that that's always happened. That's not a modern thing. That has been consistent throughout film history, and it's not going away. Um, the only tonic is a new film that kind of breaks down the doors. And I think probably the the you know the next superhero one after that was Guardians of the Galaxy, which now according to James Gunn, you get studios saying that you know trying to market or peg particular films as the next Guardians of the Galaxy. But all they're doing is aping that style that so many people liked rather than innovating. So, you know, that's that's what you're going to get. And I think that's currently what DC's in the throes of right now with, with, you know, with Batman and really with their entire universe. I think they're just aping the Christopher Nolan films, hoping that by chance they'll stumble upon some of the profundity that came so easy to Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I mean, in... Um... I, what I really like about 
Christian Bale's portrayal of Batman specifically is that it was so multifaceted. It had it had a lot of layers to it. I mean, people just say it's like, oh, there's Batman and then there's Bruce Wayne, but and and that's true to a certain extent. But this is there's there's different motivations that go into these these parts of of Batman slash Bruce Wayne and. Also, I've heard people say, like, oh, George Clooney is such a good Bruce Wayne, but he's not a good Batman. It's like, no, George Clooney is a good billionaire playboy. Billionaire right. playboy is not Bruce Wayne. Right. Right. And that's... Uh, yeah. And I, I think also, I mean, he was playing into the camp, but also in a very, yeah. super, also in a very superficial way. There's something kind of, like... I don't know. There's something ineffable about how Adam West plays him that's, like, so awesome and sincere like I've, one of the writers of the original batman series he was commenting on the dark knight and he said that i think he was criticizing the scene totally straight faced criticizing the scene where batman was driving the pod and he was like smashing the car mirrors uh, <laughs> on each yeah. side and he's just like my batman would have compensated those people for those mirrors <laughs> And it was like he was dead serious. And like, I bet was, he was. Yeah, like, that, that sounds was, like. And that was Batman to him. And I, like, there was something kind of beautiful about that. I don't know. I, I like. I am totally open to embracing a character like that, uh, knowing that yes, it's campy, but also that it's it's giving me something warm that I feel is missing right now in uh, you know in comic book films where they either have to be you know like you said dour or they have to be you know smarmy and intertextual and you know irreverent um, like something like Deadpool or even the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe I mean even that's kind of growing more and more self-aware so um, this is something different uh, I'm so yeah it did the impossible got me excited for Batman this year somehow um, yeah i thought that was never going to happen yeah and i was actually Adam, wondering i think we spent time wondering like when is there going to be another good batman movie yeah uh. and 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 it may be now maybe um and and for christ's sake they used adam west to get us excited about a batman movie so you know even more unexpected if anyone could do it <laughs> So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and rack that up as one news story. Yeah, yeah, we did not plan to talk about that at all. Uh, oh, but we sure did. So um, thank you, angry guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you yeah, you inspire us. We, you, complete me. You know, I'm actually I'm not even sure that this man was 100 percent serious. Like I, it, you know, I oh, wouldn't yeah. be surprised if he was just like. A, he he just completely trolled and said exactly what a angry DC fanboy would say. But well, damn it, it was convincing. Well, do me a favor. If he ever if he contacts you again, he pulls this bullshit. Just respond to him and say, just g- give him the entire "you and I were destined to do this forever" speech. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> you'll either you'll either win him over or he'll have nothing to say and stop talking. Yeah, yeah, it'll be it'll be that. <laughs> Destined to do this forever. You'll be in a better cell forever. I still can't believe that that's the line you that's struggled with really, the most. Really, Christopher? That's the line you're gonna use? No, I think that's the line. That, no, I, was, or, I mean, I mean, the reading, the line reading here. No, it's yeah, you're right about that. But it's also amazing to me that that's the line you struggle with the most. I, I, oh, that really? line 
He slurs it so bad. He slurs it so bad. He's like, yo, baby, the pants all forever. You cannot. Fuck, no. That is the worst spoken line of that movie. Dude, I got it first time. I'm telling you. All right, whatever. It sounds awful. Like, even though I can hear it now, it sounds like ass. It does, yeah. And I'm just like, really? That's the take you went with? Well, it's not as bad as The Dark Knight Rises, which. Well, no, nothing. Devolved into seriously almost self parody. Unintentionally. there's no way it had been made fun of enough in the dark night where like there's no way he didn't know what he was doing where's the trigger you never get your knowledge. i honestly would be surprised if it was just christopher nolan not wanting to say anything and piss christian bale off because <laughs> he didn't know he was going to storm off the set <laughs> or just explode what the fuck are you doing <laughs> Uh, well, McG, can you get this fuck out of here? And then McG comes and finishes the rest of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, anywho, um, should we just skip to the list? Yeah, really. Let's skip to the list. Was let's the Dark Knight the on this list? It was on this list. Oh, it was thirty-three. Yeah, That's pretty cool. It's pretty good. It's probably a little too good. I'm, you know. I, I, hey, I'm not complaining, you know. No, 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 me either. Although it is higher than Told You as a Slave. <laughs> you know, just something to think about. Hey. Um, but yeah, there's a great new list out. We love lists here, don't we, James? We, we eat lists. that shit up. Yeah, we eat that shit up. We make if lists. lists were literal shit, I would still eat it. I would still eat it. I would. I would eat it and shit it again. Um, <laughs> and I, I, <laughs> I shit. I, I should again. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Um, We're becoming like a human centipede of, of lists, if you will. That movie would have been made. It would have been made so much better if they used that line. I eat shit. I eat. I should again. <laughs> um. So, uh, yeah, and we especially love lists when they come not out of one jackoff giving us his opinions because that's what we do. We can. You know, we don't we don't we don't need to go get their one man stupid bullshit opinion. I mean, a new but list like that comes out every five minutes. Every five minutes, it takes no effort. What is kind of cool is when they take a poll of many, many, many respected people in this field and uh, compile the films they highlight into a comprehensive list that. Uh, that that kind of shows you where more you know where the majority of critics are leaning, and in this case, the BBC conducted this poll, uh, measuring measuring. Oh my God, um, trying to get a sense of what critics view as the best films of the 21st century so far, which of course it's kind of an arbitrary time to do it. It's 2016. It's not like it's a quarter of the way through or anything. We're 16 years into the century, but. You know, it's never you know a bad time to you know kind of you know t- take the you can pulse. Be retrospective. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with taking the pulse of modern cinema, and in this case, modern cinema draws the line at 2000. Um, and so this list is a compilation of the films that critics have highlighted. Draws the uh, line at 2000. Sorry, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. Oh yeah, you just missed the cut. Um, yeah, the there we blood got lucky with that one. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, since 2000, what are the films that uh, 
critics consider the best. Well, uh, in the case of this list, uh, it, it is topped by uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive from 2001, which is generated, of course, as a film like Mulholland Drive will, uh, a lot of controversy and differing opinions. And that's a good thing. We should be arguing and debating about uh, what is, what are considered the great films of our time. That's what makes them the great films of our time. They warrant a conversation. And that's the best thing I think about when these lists come out is that they spark so much of this discussion. You remember when uh, um, Sight and Sound oh, <laughs> slapped us in the nuts? God. Oh my! Oh, with the assassin. Yeah, yeah. After we went on so, record calling the assassin boring and uh, not really understanding what everyone loved about it so much we were immediately dicked by sight and sounds <laughs> critics <Yeah>. poll <laughs> which named it the best film of the year not by a large margin but uh it, it was it was you know a, a close three-way uh it, it was like a close top three with the assassin carol and mad max Fury road i love two of those movies and despise one of them <laughs> yeah and uh and you own Two I own of all, them. I own all three of them. Oh, you own all three. I didn't know you own Carol yet. I do own Carol. Yeah, I bought all three of them um, because <laughs> I, I still like surrounding myself with what is considered to be uh, strong cinema. And even if I don't like The Assassin, I would like to maybe someday know why others like it. Um, but uh, yeah, it, and and that just like this was a was a poll. It was not one person making the list. It was a poll of it's hundreds. democratic. Yeah, it's democratic, and it's a lot harder to argue with. Um, what amazed me about this poll, with the, the BBC poll, is how little problem I have with the list. No, no, I mean, I'm... I actually, it's, it's, I think this is maybe the most solid list of this kind that I've seen, that I would come closest to agreeing with, that would match up most closely with what I would make as... as you know, list off as the best films of the century so far. Yeah, and it's and it's giving me. Sorry, my cats are wrestling right next to me. It's so adorable. Oh, Jay. Uh, but to... it's actually giving me a lot of material of like, oh, I should look into this film. Like films exactly. I've heard about that are now in, included in in these yeah. lists and. Yeah, and that's like I really need to see the original, The Secret in Their Eyes, because I've only seen the American remake, which blew. Yep. Um, I need to see Holy Motors. That's actually uh, something I have not. I've had it recommended to me a <laughs> times. What? No, nothing. Never mind. What? What did I say? It it sparked a weird tangent in my mind that's not worth talking about. But okay, fine. But suffice it to say, you're saying Holy Motors put these the meatloaf gag from Sausage Party in my head. Which I don't oh. think we mentioned, but that was one of the funniest bits in the movie. Oh my god. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, this is a pretty darn solid list. I, like, I had very few... I actually had no moments where I was just like, what, what the fuck is that about? Which um, I expected. I, I yeah. almost actually got to one because I was scrolling through. The list is presented from 100 to 1. So I'm scrolling down and I'm just like, you know what? I haven't seen There Will Be Blood on this list. This list is bullet. Oh, there it is at number three. Number three. <laughs> like, number three. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I expected it to be lower on the list. 
<laughs> and by that metric, it's the be- It's considered the best film of the last ten years. It is, yeah. Which so, you could easily say it is. Yeah, yeah. I I very well might might say that myself. Um, so anyway, let's without having to run through the entire list, all one hundred films. Let's just do the top ten, uh, real quick. Number ten is uh, No Country for Old Men by the Coen Brothers. And actually, uh, number 11, just below that, is Inside Lewin Davis by the Coen Brothers. Uh, mm-hmm. Just pretty Which pretty I still haven't seen. So. Oh my god. Well, yeah, it, it's just pretty neat uh, that they're so... You know, they have two films that are considered such powerhouse uh, you know, works in the 21st century. I, you know, I love them. So, um, really happy to see that. Uh, Nine is a, is a Separation, uh, which is a, a wonderful wonderful film and there's uh, another film i really need to see and actually oh, i didn't yeah, realize that the one of the stars of that movie plays the uh, riz ahmed's father in the night of awesome oh really yeah oh wow i didn't know that either um but every every single actor in that is actually brilliant and i obviously hadn't d- didn't know any of them beforehand i if, if they are renowned actors they're renowned in uh iran so yeah, it's like it's a separation. That's Iranian, right? It's Iranian, yeah. Um, and you know, other than something by like Abbas Kiristami, it's probably the best film I've from Iran I've ever seen. One of the mm-hmm. few films from Iran. I mean, I haven't seen that many from Iran. Um, that especially ones that haven't been made by Abbas Kiristami. So um, yeah, it's phenomenal. And Ebert called it the best film in 2011. I actually totally agree with that. Um, except <laughs> maybe Tree of Life. I don't know. They're very different, but. Um, Separation's phenomenal. Um, eight is Yi Yi, uh, also known as a one and a two. Um, it's on Criterion. Uh, it's long, but a beautiful family portrait. Uh, seven, Tree of Life. Uh, I've been pulling for that one for a while. We'll get to talk about it at some point on the show. Um, number six, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which you said that you're surprised it's so high on this list. I am not. I love it. I love that film so much. And well, and it's not that I—it's not that I don't love it. I probably love it enough to put it in the, the top ten of this list if I had to make my own. Yeah. Uh, that being said, I just didn't think that the consensus was that great for it. So, yeah, fair enough. Um, it, it, and it's not. It always seemed like a movie that had sort of a fringe appeal. Yes, you're right. Um, especially because Michelle Gondry is not really generally talked about as not to a filmmaker. Um, so. I will be interested in the scenes because I love Eternal Sunshine and I've talked to a lot of people who love it too. Um, but I haven't actually seen a lot of critical retrospection on the film. I just know they really like it. So I'll be kind of interested to see the kind of things that are written about it in the future. Um, if, you know, assuming its status keeps up, which I believe it will because I think it's fundamentally a great film. Um, number five, five is Boyhood. Boyhood. Um, and, and can I just say that seeing that makes me so so happy and it, it makes me want to like you know rub it in the people like the, the face <laughs> of the boyhood hate generally they were birdman fans um but they would say like boyhood was you know it, it was being praised only for its you know technical you know, for, for for a technical stunt and that um the film wouldn't have any staying power and it would be forgotten in a matter of you know weeks <laughs> and, and speaking of birdman this list sure isn't nowhere on here yep yeah it's nowhere on the list um furthering uh my point that it is a flawless list um, 
Uh, well, it does have the assassin number 50, so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can't get too ahead of myself. Uh, four, Spirited Away, my favorite animated film of all time. Uh, so happy to see that. Three, There Will Be Blood, maybe my favorite film of all time. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and then two and one, uh, which have been consistently uh, called... It, it, they were the top two films from the 2000s listed in the Sight and Sound poll for greatest films of all time. Um, they've been at the top of They Shoot Pictures, Don't They's 21st Century compilation. These are like the, the big two hitters for the 21st century so far. Um, it's In the Mood for Love, which in this case is at number two. It's usually at number one, but for the BBC poll, it's at number two uh, by Wong Kar Wai. And then number one, Mulholland Drive by David Lynch, mm-hmm. um, as we said before. So, um, which, by the way, uh, In the Mood for Love is, I feel like it's a lot, uh, it's, it's, kind of underseen by a lot of casual film viewers it is well worth checking out it's it's a film about um about appearances and the sea it it actually kind of reminds me a lot of something that like todd haynes would make except in this case it's uh you know it takes place in conservative 50s hong kong instead of conservative 50s america and uh you know wong kar wise guys you know absolutely gorgeous lush way of photographing it but it's also very much about, you know, the veneer and the appearance and what sort of like tumult and emotions that they may be hiding. Um, it's, I, it's totally in my cinematic ballpark. I love that film. Um, well, worth checking out, and it gets better and better every time you see it. I've, you know, posting like three times. Um, and yes, Mulholland Drive is still uh, perplexing to this day. I have the Criterion release. I love it, um, and it's it's. A film that's somehow dear to me, but also really hard to articulate why and intellectualize because David Lynch is notoriously opposed to that kind of uh, analytical approach to his films. So, I will tell you, there is one probably really big surprise, like yeah. just really big surprise on this list. And this is one of those I must have missed something, but I also thought everyone was on the same page as me. And fair enough. Uh, it's full disclosure, I'm setting this up like I've seen this movie. I has I haven't, but uh, I didn't see it because I the, hasn't. I hasn't seen it. <laughs> Sorry. I hasn't seen it in uh, a coon's age. Oh God, that's just racist. <laughs> and regardless, Spring Breakers. Is it on here? It's seventy four. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Well, um, it surprises me because it's like I didn't think that this movie was really loved by anyone. Do, I heard I heard like a cult following, maybe, but do I think it deserves it? No, but um, so it's like, like making me want to see it. It, it. It's it's worth seeing, but I don't think it deserves it. But it's also definitely one of those films. Uh, like, okay, so the French film magazine Cahiers du Cinema, which is, it, I mean one of the most influential film magazines it's ever. like sight and sound and film comment it's right? like sight and sound and film comment it's one of like the three big 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 film publications of the world um and in fact for a time it was probably the biggest film publication in the world they named it i think their second best film of 2012 um and i think it was even on sight and sounds top 10 too this is a film that has gotten a lot of attention from global critics so it does not surprise me that it's the, to, to see it here do i think it deserves it no I think that Spring Breakers is 
kind of a bad movie. But well, and that seems to be like the general critical consensus. It didn't do too well it, on Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic or anything. I mean, it's it, it it's arguably innovative in like as an editing exercise and like the way it presents this. But it's it's a really generic take on. I, I mean, if you want, um, I mean, we, we've talked about you know I think it was A. O. Scott right who called it. Sorry to quote A.O. Scott, but, you know, called it the American cinema of excess, you know, which is like those mm-hmm. ultra materialistic, you know, very capitalist driven. I mean, I mean, to, to the point of parody um, films that came out in the early 2010s about, you know, you know, uh, aspiring to wealth above all else in America and how they were all kind of like parodies of the American dream, sick parodies. The um, Spring Breakers is basically that personified. I mean, it, it is just, it is in its most pure form, that's what Spring Breakers is. That, that, that's or I'm sorry, Spring Breakers is that cinema in its most pure form. It is just that distilled into an hour and a half of headache-inducing editing and shitty um, uh, dubstep music, and it, it makes you sick. And then you <laughs> also take the intellect, and, and you could also intellectualize it and say that was the point. Here's how it's a societal critique, and be completely legitimate. Yeah, and that interpretation is totally legitimate. I still think it's an insufferable movie, and like, just completely balls to sit through. But you know, that's it's open to interpretation, and I feel like that redeems it in a lot of critics eyes um so yeah it has gotten international praise and i'm not surprised to see it but i agree i don't think it deserves it and there's one movie i'm glad to see on this list i'm also glad to see that it's lower on the that's pretty low on this list and i actually wouldn't be surprised to see it not on the list this list because i've come down on it quite a bit and that's spotlight oh yeah 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 it's it's 88 on this Um, list i think that's a good spot because I, I Spotlight I, is a really important movie. Its subject matter was brilliant, performances great, and everything like that. And I, but I'm totally on board with people who criticized it in the beginning, who said it's invisibly directed. It is. I um. Here's the thing. I wouldn't wish Spotlight itself as a movie to be any other way. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. To, to be I, anything other than what it is, which it, it just kind of puts me in a weird spot because I think it's kind of un, you know as a as a piece of cinema, it's a, it's kind of underwhelming. It's a lot of people sitting down. Well, and just the and camera talking. work too is shot it's reverse dull. shot. That's it's shot all reverse it is. Shot. It's dull. There's there are composition shots, but even even when it's filming a group, they're they're kind of dully arranged. It's not there's there's not a lot intriguing going on. I feel like the most creative thing I saw done is a shot of Mark Ruffalo in a cab while <laughs> what he's saying is voiced over. Yeah, huh? that was. Uh, artsy um and i don't think i'd have it any other way i mean it's it's the it's the most unglamorous um non-hollywood representation of a really important news story breaking out at a struggling a major but struggling newspaper and i would feel kind of disrespect i mean look we study journalism and it would it would feel a bit more disrespectful and disingenuous to me at least and i'm sure to you too if they tried to represent it in a more typically you know hollywood sensationalized way if they tried to snowden this 
like, <laughs> where Stone is doing with Snowden, clearly, um, it would have totally, you know, ruined what they were going for here, and I think would have ultimately, you know, resulted in their worst movie. I wouldn't have Spotlight be any different than it is. I just don't think it it stacks up well to other films as a piece of cinema. Well, yeah, and I think there there is a lot more you could do about. I mean, a lot more you could do with serious subject matter that needs to be treated with respect. You don't have to... <laughs> I don't think you have to go completely hands-off with it. I mean, another film that's on this true. list, 12 Years a Slave, yeah, that's freaking a great, slavery. That's but, a great example. That's yeah, but does things like have a, a really wide shot of uh, Solomon Northup basically hanging. You know, he's not. he is hanging by his neck. He's not, like, dying, though, uh, because he's trying to... He's keeping himself up with his toes, but it's a really long, probably, like, 60-second shot of him Steve just struggling to not die while everyone else carries on behind him like it's not happening. Steve McQueen is such a master of understated artistry. He is, he can, you know, he can have a clear artistic voice with so little in his film. He can, he can do it with, he, he can make an artistic statement with Salma Northup's face in close up. Doing and saying no, I'm sorry, saying nothing, but doing a lot of acting with his face and holding on it for several minutes. It's yeah, he's he he's great, and I, I agree with you. I think that's probably the most positive example of a uh, you know a, a historical film in kind of the opposite vein. Um, that or I guess that I guess that has its cake and eats it too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, one last thing I want to say about this list that I love: um, Grand Budapest Hotel is the highest ranked Wes Anderson film on it, as it should be. I mean, as it should be, it's his best film, and you know, I would all, say, but, I would say two other quick things about it, and that's glad to see the Wolf of Wall Street on there. Wish it was higher. We've all we all know my feelings about this film by now. Um, I think it's I think it's amazing and underrated. <laughs> yeah. And the second thing is. Um, Zero Dark Thirty. I was really happy to see on here, especially because yeah. I think you just commented you were surprised to see it on my my seven my seven best films list. Even though that's I don't consider that my definitive seven best sure. films list. How that's just you, how, how I felt at the time. How I tweeted it. I'm sure everyone's seven films list is a fleeting snapshot of their mood at that particular second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I think her is too low. Her, yeah, I, I would agree that, with that. What, 84, right? 84. Yeah, 84. That's way too low. Well, we all know I think AI artificial intelligence is too high, but... <laughs> I'm happy it made it at all. I think it's a masterpiece. Fuck all the haters. No, I know. and That's one of those things that I saw in there, and I wasn't surprised because I know how many people feel really strongly about it, and I'm just not one of those people, but good critics can respect the idea that... People can have different takes on movies. Totally valid. That's true. Um, also, Fury Road coming in at nineteen. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking awesome. Is that the highest blockbuster? Uh, I just closed out a list. You tell me. Okay. Um, White Ribbon, no. Pan's Labyrinth, no. Holy Motor. I think it's the highest blockbuster. Uh, I mean, yeah. Zodiac's got Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr., but it's not really a blockbuster. No. Um. I, I think we have our highest block highest rated blockbuster. What's the highest buy? What's the next blockbuster on the list? Um, 
Wally? The Dark Knight? The Dark Knight or Wally? Um, yeah, 33 would and 29. Would you, would you consider Memento a blockbuster? <laughs> no. All right, well. I consider that actually like a quiet indie yeah, film yeah, that yeah, happened yeah, to take yeah. off. Okay, all right, yeah. Um, like a sleeper then, hit. That was a sleeper hit. Then, yeah, it, it's Wally. Uh, is the next lowest one. Yeah, at 29. Yeah, so pretty pretty dang great. Um, Mad Max Free Road. I'm really glad that stood the test of time, and I don't look like a fool for saying what I said. It stood the test of time for a whole year. Yeah, for a whole year. Hey. Let's let's wait a decade or two before, you know, saying that it definitively passed the test of time. It's true. It, it hasn't passed the test of time yet, but it's still holding up. It is. Point. It's holding up very well. Very, very well. Um, <laughs> I think, is it the highest rated film from 2015? I, I keep asking you these questions, and I know you probably exited out. It is. It is the highest rated film from 2015. Cool. So. I mean, I would... Uh, you know, you know my feelings about that. I would, of course, have picked Phoenix, and I'm sad that that's not on this list. I feel like that was just underseen by how everybody. The fuck? I know. And also, how the fuck does a movie like The Assassin make it on in Phoenix? Ugh. I'm so mad about that. Ugh, oh well. Also, when we were picking so many 2015 movies, 45 years, man, that should. Oh my god. So okay. good. Never mind. Okay, never mind. This is a piece of shit. This list sucks. <laughs> Fuck this. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it was a good list. I'm glad about it. And But we gotta move on. Or else we'll uh, just have a whole podcast for, talking about someone else's list. For, for Christ's sake. Um, yeah. So, speaking of films that should make it on lists. <laughs> Kubo and the Two Strings. Yeah. This is the latest film from Leica Pictures, and uh, I like uh, their work. How many times have you use that pun? Have I already used it this podcast? Well, shit. <laughs> oh, I did. I did use this podcast after the opening, because I didn't know what else to say. Yeah, yeah, we just sort of, like, fuck around in the opening until we get into a natural groove of talking, and it, it, there's a little bit of bumbling that goes on, it's, a little bit of silence, a little bit of us. It's the closest I ever get to ad-libbing. <laughs> because it is ad living. But yeah, we're just like eh, uh, excuses uh, to say words. Oh, dude. <laughs> the Holocaust is a lie. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So <laughs> happens when you put me on the spot. I just say things. Woo. Woo. Now that we got that out of the way. Uh, the assassin was a masterpiece. If that if that uh, if that comes off as me being serious, take it out. And if it comes as, across as the joke it was intended to be, leave it in. I'll take the I'll take the controversy. Cool. You got it, man. All right. Um, Kubo and the Two Strings is a story about a boy named Kubo, and he's got a guitar. That very distinctly has three strings. And it's so. got three strings. So, zero stars. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Movie's bullshit. The guy has three strings bullshit. on his guitar. <laughs> uh, God, I would love to get, like, give like stupid-ass reviews like that. Have you, have you, if you've ever watched the local news channels that have film critics on them, Oh, Pat, no. Pat and Oswald did a whole thing on it 
um, <laughs> this is what they do. Like the, he's like they review the Road Warrior, and he's like, "This is some movie from Australia, and it's uh, the future, and there's an oil crisis, but they're all driving around in cars." I don't get it. Zero stars. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No, it's true though. Like that's what shitty local movie critics do. Um, Kubo and the Two Strings on the other hand Anyway, Kubo Is a uh, movie by Leica Entertainment I believe is their full word They might just be called Leica or Leica Productions And and I'm already getting caught up in semantics (laughs) So Leica is a studio You will know from movies like Coraline mostly and also they did Paranorman And The Box Trolls from Mm -hmm. 2014 which Lost to Big Hero 6 Regardless (laughs) That's how man. I just realized that is how we got on our our whole Batman tangent. It is, yeah. <laughs> Big Hero Six, Marvel, because, right? Because Marvel, and then Vitriol and comment about fuck Marvel that I wrote and on then an article spontane- I wrote about Batman. Spontaneous first news story. Yeah, man, that's awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and now it comes full circle to Kubo and the Two Strings. So yeah, stop motion animation studio, and this movie is also stop motion animation. They're probably one of the few studio, one of the only studios, if not the only, the, that I, consistently the, does stop motion. They're the only major one that I know about. Yeah, and they're sticking sticking to it every every film they make. And sadly, I, I'll get this out of the way: Kubo and the Two Strings not doing too hot at the box office. No, it, I think debuted at number four. Um, still behind Suicide Squad, which on which makes me so sad. I saw this yesterday at um, uh, RPX, so one of the biggest, I think, the biggest screen in the Barclay, and they're doing this new thing at Regal where they're having you, you get to choose your seats in RPX. So it, you choose from an available available list, or well, they show you a seating chart, and they're like, okay, pick them. And then she shows me the seating chart. I was like, oh, which which seats have already been taken? And she looks at the screen and she's like, uh, looks like uh, none of them. I'm like, are you fucking serious? Like, I saw this at 8 p.m. Like, yeah, on a weeknight, but still, I only I showed up, like, maybe 20 minutes early. I... And okay. eventually there were, Just to I think, show 12 my other people besides me. Okay. Well, just to show my hand, I want there to be lines around the fucking corner for this movie. <laughs> I, this, this is, okay, like, I, I'm not saying this needs to be an enormous blockbuster that's gonna, you know, shatter records. What I am saying is this film deserves to be seen, and the hard work of the animators who worked on it deserves to be repaid, and deserves to be rewarded. And I, so far we are not seeing that in the box office returns and that makes me so sad because I think Kubo and the Two Strings is the best animated film I've seen this year so far I think it's a strong contender for one of one of the best animated films I've ever seen um, it's I think like his greatest achievement to date and it has also one of the most meticulously and beautifully animated films I've ever experienced it's 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 stop motion of the highest caliber they built 17 foot tall puppets <laughs> for, for certain sequences they 
it, it is it, it is stunningly beautiful in parts and yeah I, I I the idea of the people who worked on this thinking that their their labors aren't appreciated that makes me like that makes me way too upset so help me out here James I I did not ask you how you felt about this film before seeing it. I told you right away because I couldn't hold it in. What's what's your take on this? Um, it's easily the best animated movie of the year. Uh, it might be... It, I could make a case that it's Leica's best movie, which, like, the best movie out of one of the best animated studios is going to be a really, really good movie. And, yeah, I'm really depressed by the, the box office returns. Like, this could be, like, their first real flop which would suck. I mean, it, it, for them to have their best film be their one that's least interesting. And this is almost too... I mean, at least marketing-wise, there's... This one's pretty traditional, too. Their other stories were sort of tough sells. I mean, The Box Trolls is one of the most bizarre screenplays you'll ever read. Yeah. Uh, Coraline, I actually heard an interview with the B-Movies podcast. Travis Knight was talking about it when he was pitching... Uh, Coraline to different to different studios to actually release the movie. One of the things he was told was that you can't have an animated movie with with a girl protagonist protagonist unless she's a princess. Oh fucking a, really? Yeah, no, that's one of the things he he was told by by studios. They're like, this won't work because you have a girl lead and she's not a princess. And that harkens back to this this thing that we've talked about before when we reviewed Sausage Party that people see animation as a genre as you ha- you need to tell a story in this particular way because that's what an animated film is it needs to be geared towards children it needs to have this and it's etc etc and Leica and oddly enough Seth Rogen <laughs> see a- animation as a medium as a tool to tell a story and in Seth Rogen's case it was the Lampoon story and in Leica's case it's to actually tell interesting original stories and that's the best thing they have going for them and I mean Kubo is probably what I back to my original point that Kubo is at least on its face one of the most like straightforward and easily marketable movies you got you got cool kid samurai you got these talking animals you know you got a quest he has to go on it's it's I mean, what is not marketable fit, about it this? It seems to fit pretty neatly into an archetype. Like you can, it it to me it de- like it defies a lot of expectations that you would that one would have going into the film. But at least on the surface, it takes on the it, it assumes the guise of of other animated films and and plots other animated films that we've seen before. So it's not way out of left field like you could definitely argue something like Coraline is I think it's all the stronger for it but in the box trolls too I would definitely argue oh definitely with the box trolls uh yes uh I still I'm still shocked at what I got from that film <laughs> it's not what I was anticipating um and uh, yeah it's it's kind of a shame to be fair though I haven't seen it marketed as much as I, you know, I, I certainly not as much as I've seen something like Suicide Squad marketed, but yeah, um, yeah I know. 
you know, uh, if if this film hadn't been getting the reviews it had been getting, it probably would have flown under my radar. Uh, flown under my radar, to be honest. Well, yeah, this film is it's really given it, the advertising. Honestly, is really given me like Iron Giant vibes. Like they just don't know what they have, so I was, they're I was advertising kind of cool movie. scenes without really any giving anyone a real idea of what they're going to get. Which and here we are. Fundamentally, a a film about the function of storytelling in our culture, um, and 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 also about memory and the loss of memory and how, to a certain point, uh, to to a certain point, there's no real distinguishable difference between memory and storytelling, um, and it's it, like like to me this, if I was a kid exposed to some of these ideas for the first time it would inspire me to become an artist <laughs> like it, it it confers on its audience young or old the value of art and and this kind of like ineffable human fallibility and how it informs how we view the world how our pain and our you know weaknesses and our you know and you know inner inhibitions and our imperfections make art actually have value and you know give you know yeah like that that's just a crazy abstract idea to get your head around and i'm not sure that it's going to necessarily sink in for every kid who sees this film but on the other hand the fact that it was able to be expressed so beautifully and succinctly and effectively in an animated children's film it's no small feat at all what's this movie about this movie is about a boy named kubo who uh had his eye stolen by his grandfather the moon king the moon king yes the moon king um and who lives with his mother who has who kind of drifts between being catatonic and uh, you know, losing her memory and occasionally telling stories, but she's clearly in like this reduced state. Uh, lives with his mother on a cliffside, and he goes down into the village and uses his magical guitar with three strings, not two. Fuck this movie, to uh, <laughs> to animate <laughs> to animate slips of paper um, and tell stories with them and enchant crowds. Um, he uses that to earn money, and uh, and uh, you know supports his mother. You know they eat eager meal, uh, meager meals, and then he's got to be back uh, inside, undercover, and hiding by nightfall. Because if he's out at nightfall, uh, the Moon King and uh, who is his mother's, who is his grandfather, uh, and his mother's sisters will find him and take him away to their land where everything is perfect and no one ever dies, and it is flawless. Uh, it's just a an infinite world, and. Uh, eventually, pulling from the climax with this plot synopsis. <laughs> what? That's that was established in the beginning, was it not? I didn't think so. I don't know. Uh, whatever. Okay, whatever. It's not like I'm revealing a huge twist. No, no. Um, let's just say uh, through a series of events, the village is destroyed, and Kubo has to go on the run, uh, and he teams up with a monkey named Monkey. And a former warrior transformed into a beetle, named Beetle. 
played and by Matthew McConaughey. Played by Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and uh, uh, to find his the three pieces of his father's armor, uh, the sword unbreakable, the armor impenetrable, and the helmet something. And uh, that only then will he be able to defend himself from his grandfather and his three crazy ass aunts. And uh, that is the spoiler free synopsis, although apparently I might have spoiled something, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, on the surface, a pretty traditional adventure story that I think hides a lot of beautiful themes about, about being an author about being an artist and conferring a story on people. Enchanting people with your stories. Even to the point, he's using paper. <laughs> so he's literally animating the paper, but it's also kind of in the same way that uh, an author will enchant his audience with, literally, with paper. Uh, he creates by magic uh, the, these origami figures that, uh, as you said, they're animated. They They help they're a visual aid to tell his stories. Mm-hmm. And then it was a really beautiful scene in the first part because he goes down into town, tells that story, and then he goes back home and he asks his mom to tell him a story. And it's like a similar story? I don't know if it was the same, but... But it's something about being the recipient of... I, I don't know. There, there's something... There's a, there's a fundamentally different relationship being, of being the recipient of a story and being a storyteller. And uh, I like how Kubo, in a sense, needs to be both. Kubo the movie or Kubo the, the person? The, the person. Got it. That makes a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Yeah, he's he's not just this storyteller. He takes part in a tradition of storytelling. I think that's what's, what's neat about the movie. It doesn't just establish him as someone who gets caught up like i feel like we we see the trope a lot of a the fantasy hero who likes stories and they get caught up in fantasy and you know they're always they're either always the you know they're always writing stories or they're always reading stories kubo is kubo actually acknowledges the value of you know continuing to tell stories as the generations go on and now that you know allows a person even when they've passed and even though they're temporary to continue to inform the present i like that that was that was a really neat and beautiful idea and something that i actually you know you, you talked about uh you know we, we we talked about this you know concern of ours before of you know of, of mortality and this is i think Mm-hmm. I, I think addresses it in a really beautiful way where it actually kind of uses that as the crux of, you know, what makes life and art valuable. I definitely had flashbacks and some conversations we had. I, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I don't know if I've seen a film recently that's addressed it like this, that's addressed it in a way that touched me so much. Like I, there was a scene of and and I mean I was I was partly moved just by the visual beauty, but also by the sentiment behind it. Uh, it, it comes pretty early, where uh, the townspeople are lighting lanterns and setting them out to sea, um, to you know essentially help the help their loved ones pass on to the spirit world. And uh, you know they're all preparing their lanterns and sending them into the river. And Kubo kind of 
you know, puts together a makeshift lantern and tries to summon the spirit of his father, and he is, is unable to. Um, and then there's just a scene where everyone else, he's still, you know, he's frustrated and crumples up the lantern because he can't talk to his father. And everyone else is putting their their lanterns adrift in the river, and there's just this shot of them going downstream, juxtaposed with the mountains and the sunset, and it is just one of the most, like, touching stretches of film. I, I don't know what it was. I was, like, on the verge of tears in that scene. Well, this movie just, brought me to that point a lot, I, and I like this yeah. sort of in in contrast with the the other Leica films I've seen, because I haven't seen Paranorman, so I've seen three out of four now, that I think they lacked this this emotional center that I got from it, and that, not that that's a bad thing at all, no, and no, we'll, no. we'll go that with the box trolls, but this makes Kubo un- unique among the filmography of Leica, uh, that it was able to to get me on those moments and yeah. uh, you know i can't say too much more without going into spoiler territory which i'm happy to go into but yeah. uh i i definitely got away i took i took from this more than i thought i was going to oh yeah yeah um uh there's there there's similar sequences i even remember in Coraline of beauty and wonder but they didn't necessarily have, like, like you said, they didn't necessarily have that um, underlying poignancy that I think Kubo had. And, and don't get me wrong, those sequences still stick out. There's a scene in Coraline where I think it's in the, she goes into the spirit world, or the, you know, whatever they call it, the, you know, the... I can't remember. <laughs> the, dark, the dark flip side of the coin of her, you know, normal reality. And or the dark world, yeah. The dark world, yeah. Or to the dark world. Um, <laughs> And uh, her button-eyed father gives her a uh, tour of, like, this her garden, which is, like, turned into this, like, magical, beautiful place. And it's just this scene of complete splendor and spectacle. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And I still remember that sequence because of how well it was animated, the sense of awe and beauty, even though you knew there was, like, this darkness lingering underneath it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I love that sequence. I still remember it. I still think it pales in comparison to um, the scene I just mentioned, or even a scene later that kind of gave a similar vibe where the knight, his grandfather, Kubo's grandfather, the knight, the moon king, um, comes to him in a dream and kind of shows him this infinite perfect world that he wants Kubo to come be a part of. And it's it's not a very long scene, but it it, it gave off that similar sense of of mystery and and hidden dread that the scene from Coraline did, but again, fit within the beautiful thematic framework of this film, which, again, I think is in in less deft hands, it would be incredibly dense and wouldn't work as a children's film at all. And they somehow managed to communicate it in a way that you know. Is effective that kids can understand, but that doesn't simplify it or hammer it too, you know, too much on the nose. Um, the Moon King, played yes. by Ray Fiennes, uh, who I didn't even right. realize, by the way. No, no, no. I knew I recognized the voice, but I couldn't peg where. And then after I saw the credits, I'm like, oh, that was totally Gustav. <laughs> Gustav H. Gustav H. Who the hell is Gustav H? <laughs> that would be me, darling. <laughs> Uh, he was he was really good at this, and man, I think I I gotta go into spoiler to talk about this movie any further. Just, just do it, man. So spoiling it up, 
it it dawned on me seriously. It, I it it was amazing to me how they were able to give this villain a character and a character that I can easily understand. He's he's not you know come on it's I think it's portrayed early on that oh he's evil this is why you do this thing because you're evil and it's like no and his speech to to Kubo at the end is all about how he's seriously just raged at the idea of mortality and that's what drove him down this path that the idea that people die and that loved ones die is all too dreadful that we need to go to this infinite world it's going to be all better and I need I'm going to do anything to to make that happen and I was like holy shit this guy's that's, me that's that's uh, exactly it's like the most human fears that drove him to that yeah and it's like that's, I could, like that is who I could become <laughs> yeah exactly and this feels like a beautiful cautionary tale against doing that to yourself um <laughs> And uh, yeah, I, I, it's it, it, it simultaneously humanizes the villain, and uh, um, also I think gives them a uh, satisfaction. I think it. I, I don't know how you feel about the way it resolved his story, but I think it. Didn't I exactly love the it, way it resolved I his love, story. Yeah, they they, they set it up too. I mean, they even ask him. He's like, "So, what's the end of the story?" And Kubo's like, "I kill you." I'm like, "Really." Uh, Is that how it's gonna? Uh, yeah, that would have been okay. It's like good I, triumphs over evil. Got it. Right, and I'm so happy they didn't do that. It's like I said. I think they almost maybe even put that line in there to put in the trailer. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't even know if they did. I don't but. think they did it to put it in the trailer, but it did sound like trailer. They did it to draw attention to this this trope, honestly, of of animated movies and good versus evil stories. That to point out that. They're all too simplistic, you know. They're not. They're yeah. not giving one side or the other enough, enough credit that these are these are all people in there. And how and Kubo's actual response, which is the most beautiful part of the movie, is to say, you know, he he doesn't outright reject killing him. There's no like I won't kill you line no. or anything like that. But he's saying I understand now, and I'm I need to show you the beauty of life. Right. And that's what that's what I'm fighting for. Fighting to recognize that there are beautiful things and. The reveal that that's why he wanted to take his eye was amazing because it has a great payoff with how uh, Charlize Theron, you know, his mother and father. Uh, I can't remember what his mother's name is, but uh, he only I thought he only called her mother and then monkey. Hanzo. Hanzo's his father. Yeah, Hanzo's his mother. But yeah, anyways, his mother and father. That's how they they met and fell in love because you know earlier it's told that his mother was was sent to kill him, but then looked him in the eye and saw that things were beautiful that you know she didn't have to be this way she could enjoy life and enjoy living and loving with another person and that's why he wanted to take kubo's eyes so that couldn't happen and then he could be angry and <laughs> there's also this live forever there's also this trope of like the blind person being the one who sees most clearly um i mean that goes back to greek you know that goes back yeah. to greek myth and uh, i think it's kind of interesting they make the moon king when he first shows up on screen his first appearance he looks so benevolent he looks so cool yeah he was really cool and you almost think that he's this like spiritual mentor and like again he's blind almost playing to the you know the blind prophet trope from greek myth um and turns out they are actually using it as symbolism but in you know a less ironic way where he is actually you know the only way he can you know even confront humanity is by completely turning a blind eye to to 
all their fallibility and uh, and you know you know flaws, sins, of their their mortality, everything. He can't engage with it in any way, and again, that's it, it's actually a. It, it's actually, I think, basically the same motivation that drove Ray Fiennes' uh, other very famous film that he portrayed, which is Lord Voldemort and Harry Potter. Um, it's actually, actually, yeah, come to think it's, of it. it. It's the same fundamental dynamic working beneath the surface, um, which is uh, you know, ultimately a fear of the temporal and of dying. Um, which, you know, again, you take a, it, it's it turns a monstrous character into someone with very, very relatable motivations um so let's talk about uh, the supporting characters of which there are mainly mainly two um Charlize Theron as for, string first, number one string number one uh all, a- aka Kubo's mom aka monkey and that was another cool payoff too when I when I realized you know because Kubo the two strings the title and then you see, I thought it referred to the guitar when I saw the the trailers, and then I kept seeing that very distinctly it has three strings, so they're talking about something else, or maybe something's going to happen in the third string. It reminded me of uh, 99 Homes, the movie, which you still need to see. Yes. But throughout the movie, they keep talking about 100 Homes. So, of course, you're like... What, what happens what, to the 100th home? What happens home? to the 100th home? <laughs> Why is there only yeah. 99 Homes? Yeah. yeah. And then, then you get to, to find out, and it pays off really well. And in this one, it also paid off really well because... It sure does. He, he gets the one bracelet at a hair, and then when he puts the other one, he kind of notices it later when he puts it on. It's like, oh. <laughs> memories are powerful. And that's... Yeah, in this in this world, memories can elicit you know, a very powerful magic. Um, which, again, is symbolically very beautiful and poignant. Um, if... Okay, yeah, it's cliche, but I thought it was a very, very nice touch. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the two characters, how they treated the two characters was cliche. Yeah. And it was sort of like the least, I think I said this to Kim when I got back, I, I said the most cliche moments they were able to make the least important. Yes. which It's like with the big reveal that, oh, the monkey's actually Kubo's mom, and... Shocker, the beetle okay. is actually Kubo's dad. Okay, so I'll give you this. The monkey actually did... I did not know that it was going to be Kubo's mom. I didn't notice it was the same voice actress. No, I see, I didn't either. Um, I thought they were similar. You know, that one actually... It, that one surprised it, me. As soon as that was established, I knew immediately that Matthew McConaughey was Hanzo. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I'm glad they didn't... I, I was like... Wait, because they're still not addressing it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't come to them as naturally as it came to me, or you watching it. Um, and I would assume a lot of people because it's not a very hard. Uh, once once they've established who Monkey is, it's not very hard to put two and two together. Um, At the same time, though, I I was kind of fooled, and I think the movie took some steps to actually actively fool me. Like yeah. they have the the little the little Hanzo the Hanzo origami figure uh-huh. when when they're telling the story it cuts to him and he's and he is motioning and then points to him like yeah that's me and yeah, then right. and then uh, you know they were talking about this different they were talking about Matthew McConaughey as this as a friend of Hanzo which I thought was kind of a cool dynamic so right. I was I was kind of on board even even after the reveal of Monkey as Kubo's mom I was like 
I was like, oh, well, it's cool that they have this other character here. Okay, well, that still makes sense. <laughs> so as soon as as soon as they were like getting flirty with each other, I'm like, okay, this is these are Kubo's parents. There's no it's like, like they're like, getting flirty with each other. It's either vastly either, inappropriate or yeah, exactly. It's either completely unacceptable in any children's film, or <laughs> it's the spirit of his human parents, and therefore, uh, <laughs> and therefore, okay. Um, how how did you feel about Matthew McConaughey as Beale slash Hanzo? Because I think if I were to be critical of the film in one regard, it might actually be its sense of comedic relief. Because for me, it didn't always really hit home. It kind of felt like they were trying to get a laugh a bit too hard without actually having... I, I don't consider this a very funny movie. No, and I think the those are the points where they're trying to... I don't want to say pandering, but they are trying to cater to the, the younger audience at some points by, yeah. by making it funny. But no, honestly, I didn't laugh too much at, at many of the jokes. I like, though... and I, But I think those moments in his character work more than just to elicit a visceral reaction. Yeah. It's just that it, it, it painted him as a very, like, whimsical, go-with-the-flow type of person who's like, you know, the this is his sort of outward defense mechanism of just never treating things full, with their full weight, at least outwardly. And yeah, just just going for it. And that, I saw that was kind of endearing. So it was. I I liked the sentiment of his character, but I also just I I don't necessarily. I'm not a hundred percent sold on the execution of him because I think he just kind of once he was on screen, he kind of just like would throw the pacing of certain scenes off just a little bit. Like even the scene where they're eating fish on a boat, there's just the way it was cut, the way that they played the, the jokes on, they, they kind of lay the jokes on one after another. The, the beats of that scene just felt a little off. Like well, there I, was it, one, there was one moment where I can't tell you how many times I've seen this exact shot and something else where they where two people are doing something ridiculous and then it cuts to a third person in the who's middle watching that person yeah. watching those people do something ridiculous and then they're still and then even that piece of fish that drops that happens all the fucking time like yeah. just one thing changes in the scene it's done for comedic relief but cabin in the woods did that right so if i were to pick if, if, if i were to deem any part in the film an achilles heel which I don't think it's nearly. That's pretty dramatic. That's incredibly dramatic. There's, it's, I in fact I, I regret even saying that. It's, it's 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 a weak point, but it's yeah. not. It's, it's. It's like maybe a chink in their armor. Yeah, it's so insignificant that it's not really worth quibbling over too much. Um, but I was just wondering if you had a similar, it, it because it's such a. Uh, I don't know. It, it was just a matter of kind of feeling the rhythm of the scene and just not entirely working for me. It's really hard to know if that was just me or if that was something that you experienced as well. So having to know I'm not entirely crazy with that. Um, yeah, no, you're you're not at all. It, it it was distracting at some points, and I, as I said, I thought they were that was just when they were trying to say, "Hey, we're a kids' movie too," and it's mm-hmm. like you don't really need to do that. Yeah, it, those were the moments where I because. For the rest of the film, it, it it does what Pixar and Studio Ghibli do at their best, where they don't talk down to their audience at all. They they just accept the fact that kids will be able to follow the well, story. Brad Bird is probably one of the best at that 
of yeah. making movies that do do not condescend to children whatsoever. Definitely, definitely, and you know, never having to, you know, never feeling like it has to spell it out too clearly for children. It it has faith that they can follow. You know what's going on, what they actually want to communicate with these scenes, and it casts such a spell over me because I love when kids' films do that. Uh, that it just kind of it, it stood out even more when you know the occasional moment came where they were trying a little too hard to, you know, insert a joke or something like that. But again, th- those were few and far between, mostly concerning Beetle. But I that said, I do think Matthew McConaughey was a great choice to play him, and he actually did pretty good. I would say voice acting wise, you know, mm-hmm. and without. Although it was very clearly Matthew McConaughey, it wasn't the same Matthew McConaughey voice I've heard a thousand times. Like he he mixed it up a little, just enough, I will say. <laughs> it was a little, it was a little weird because you can still hear his Texan drawl a little bit, and <laughs> they're clearly in like an Eastern inspired world. Uh, I think Japanese, straight up it, Japanese, straight up Japanese. Like... Yeah, okay, and and just <laughs> hearing that juxtaposed with, you know. Uh, juxtaposed in this world just seemed a little a little off to me that said I I, I, I did like if I didn't like jokes themselves I liked the goofy sensibility that he brought to them to me it was it was just right because it wasn't it you know it wasn't campy it wasn't drawing attention to itself it wasn't goofy it it was just light and kind of fun and silly in a way that I thought was totally fitting. So, yeah, you know, I, he, I, I agree. He did a really nice job. Um, Not to jump ahead too early, I think we could contrast the comedy in this movie pretty well with what is how it was used in Box Trolls. The, the jokes in Box Trolls, I think, are really witty and smart, and uh, you can almost miss them if you're not paying attention, which I really like, so... Yeah, it's actually almost... Yeah, I would actually say it's probably the pretty much the polar opposite. Again, though, I think Box Shows has a much more prominent role. Um, I mean, for Christ's sake, the film ends on basically a waiting for Godot existential conversation between two animated characters about how their fates. <laughs> I think that was dictated in like advance. Quasi post credits, but yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But it does have I, it in there. Yeah, that was also one of the most brilliant scenes in the entire film. So it was really funny. Um, I mean, fuck, it actually, that was a theme in Anomalisa, and they just spelled it out in a children's film a year before it came out. <laughs> Man, I wish I made that connection when we reviewed Anomalisa. Yeah, a, this is basically a movie about that throwaway bit at the end of Box Trolls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I actually did find the humor, yeah, I mean, in general, the humor in Box Trolls is actually a lot more, um... I say adult-oriented, but I don't mean that in the way it's normally used, which basically just means dirty. Um, no, it just means smarter in this case. It's actually a lot smarter, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you want to say anything more about Kubo? Um, I would just like to say that uh, kudos to the animators who worked with the, you know, you know, 10, 17, whatever it was, foot-tall models and animated them so wonderfully. The action sequences in this are incredible. And that's the thing. This is one of the first... I mean, this is the first I've seen that's just stop-motion action. 
done really well in this case. I mean, I think I've seen some stop motion action esque scenes in like Robot Chicken or something, but it's done better and more comprehensively here than most animated. Like it's it, it's actually the most clearly choreographed and edited action since like Fury Road. Wow, uh, 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 it is. I'm sorry. I, I can't argue with that because I don't. Con- yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. You seem surprised, but go ahead. Ca- contradict me. See if what the, what else you got? Uh, Rogue Nation. No, no. Rogue Nation was fun, entertaining, <laughs> but I, I, in terms of like creatively choreographed and easily comprehensible action visually. This is this is top tier, man. Okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. I, I mean, especially the scene where uh, it, I mean the main action set piece actually probably comes um, about a third of the way through, or maybe a on little the bit boat? more. No, no, no. Um, that's true. There is a pretty great action sequence on the boat. I was thinking about the skeleton. Oh the yeah, skeleton. you're right. Um, and that came before the boat, so that came before the boat. There, actually, one of the reviews I read about this was—it was ridiculous. It said it was—it would bore children because it had, or or that it would confuse children and bore adults because it only had one significant action sequence that took place a third of the way through the movie. The fuck? What? Yeah, it was a, It was like I was actually offended by that review. Yeah. <laughs> it, it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I think, the only yellow review on Metacritic. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's got four... No, wait. I'm mixing that up. I don't know. Regardless. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's the kind of attention span that this that some critics think that audiences have. And hey, maybe they're, pro- they're proved right because audiences aren't seeing this movie. Please see this movie, listeners. Yeah. Oh, and you know what's even worse? That was a critic, film critic for The Guardian. Oh, good. Yeah, little kids. Little kids will be bored, and there are only a few scenes with any action, and those, only, and of those, only one featuring an enormous skeleton with swords sticking out of its skull has any oomph. Oomph. Has any oomph. Ugh. It's the only one with oomph, James. Oomph. That's yeah. the one you went with. Oomph. <sighs> if I were to describe this movie in one word, it would be oomph. Oomph. <laughs> I would describe it in two words to be no oomph. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so I just want to give a shout out to the incredible action sequences. Um, and uh, I uh, do I have any closing final thoughts on this movie? For, I think I might have, but then I forgot. And it's probably going to be one I'm going to remember at three o'clock this morning. So um, just go if you don't go see this movie, you're a bad person. <laughs> Ouch. That's my highest rating. Um, Damn, America, he calling you out. What's up? What's up? What's up? <laughs> It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. What'd you do to them nice animators? What did I do? 
I supported them is what I did. I bought a ticket to the film that they worked so hard on. All right, well, I want to move on to the next film, which they also worked so hard on. They did. Oh, oh, the thing I was going to say is that that um, there's a bit at the end, kind of in a less funny, less creative version of the box trolls, you know, mid-credit sequence, where um, you just see an animator working on the enormous skeleton puppet and yeah. animating it one frame at a time and all the hard work. And in any other film, that would have been way too self-congratulatory and i would have i would have it would have rubbed me the wrong way and this i'm like no fucking no show people how fucking hard you work on this goddamn movie (laughs) you've earned it i don't know about you but that's i was totally on board yeah and they really they avoided to do they avoided that again in well they avoided that before in the box trolls. It wasn't self-congratulatory at all. It was no. It was actually used really well for comedic effects. Yeah, yeah, and they were almost even like joking around themselves, like why would why do we even work this hard to do this? No, no, that that was better. That was better. But I, still, if they just want to show off the awesome animation they did on this, go right the fuck ahead, man. It's it's so good. <laughs> so box trolls. Box trolls is a movie that. I have only grown to appreciate more as I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Particularly, well, there's there's a few parts in particular that I have loved more and more. But I think when I when I first saw it in 2014, I was really high on the other animated films I've seen that year, besides, of course, Big Hero Six, and it just sort of flew under my radar, and that's fine. But and that's the purpose of these segments, really, that we're doing. It, you know, their forgotten favorite. The hey, you should actually remember this movie. And Box Trolls was seriously fantastic, and it, certainly better than Big Hero Six. Um, maybe the worst otherwise that was nominated, but the yeah, worst I was gonna say doesn't imply I, bad. I was gonna say I still think Box Trolls, and this is maybe weird because we're doing it for. Uh, and uh, forgot we're doing it for a forgotten favorite, and it is a for we. I think we both consider it a forgotten favorite. Um, that said, I I still think that it deserved to lose in 2014. It just did not deserve to lose to Big Hero Six. No. <laughs> in fact, I think it deserved to lose to either uh, Tale of Princess Kaguya or Song of the Sea, which are probably also the two films that got they, they probably placed lowest of all the. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah that year i wouldn't because, be surprised if they got the lowest votes because the fewest number of academy voters saw it saw them and they're you know what's children. this chinese shit what's this chinese shit i thought this was america fucking ridiculous yeah and like song of the sea is like irish i think it, it is irish and in and television Kuya is japanese uh-huh. not chinese so Woo. yeah <laughs> Woo. Academy trying to embrace more cultures. <laughs> you know we've had you've had a problem with that lately. Get it? Because uh-huh. yeah. So James, what uh, what in particular surprised you about this film, um, or about rewatching it? Uh, what surprised me? I say I say about rewatching. Well, I'll answer I'll answer those in the order in which you asked them. Uh, what surprised me about this film is how, and I hinted this earlier, how utterly bizarre 
the whole plot is. I mean, not really the plot. I'd say the, the like the plot details. I, it's amazing to me that this movie got greenlit by anyone. <laughs> yeah. It's so freaking strange. You have this weird, weird villain who wants to be a part of this society that just sits around and eats cheeses, <laughs> different types of cheeses, because, you know, that's what, like, rich, awesome people do. And he's also allergic to cheese. <laughs> it were- it reminded me of that Lonely Island song uh, where whenever they wanted to uh, symbolize conformity, they would always use the metaphor of boiled goose for no real reason, but that was just became it just became the metaphor for for conforming in society <laughs> and being lame. Well, yeah, and so in order to to get to be a part of the society, he uh, agrees to rid the city of these things called box trolls uh, which you know the the giant propaganda machine has convinced everyone is are not to be trusted they're violent monsters who eat babies and everything like that and, and another thing about one of these characters is a little girl who's absolutely enthralled by this violent by this possibility of violent malicious tendencies by mm-hmm. these monsters <laughs> one of the things she's one of the best lines in the movie she's like did they kill your parents did they let you watch i mean did they make you watch <laughs> <laughs> that's actually and, and honestly that kind of gets at one of the things that i think you get with uh Leica that you don't actually get even with the big animation studios like the 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 really great ones like pixar and disney and and studio ghibli there's a there's a very fundamental darkness behind all like there's (laughs) definitely i I don't want to say fundamental because i think at heart they're actually all very optimistic and beautiful movies um but there's definitely a a tinge of dark humor that they are not afraid to weave throughout um not just box trolls but all of their films uh probably most prominently Coraline, but well, yeah, like, and I mean it's, having it's a consistent theme, but also I mean not just in general darkness, but having having not seen Paranorman, box trolls is I think their their only allegorical uh, movie. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. You could you could make a stretch for Kubo, but that's a stretch. Yeah, no, I mean because I mean dark subject matter. This is a an animated movie, which many people see as fundamentally because of that a kids movie but this is like pretty much pre-holocaust germany it's it's a it's not a subtle allegory of someone who who wants power and uses preys on people's fear to of of a certain person of a certain a group of people to get that power and spreads propaganda about how awful they are exterminates them and it's amazing too how much people are on board with it you know they're it's not like he's a tyrant who's making them think this way he is convinced them that this is the right path it's also got class commentary oh definitely of the wazoo but also in a way that doesn't entirely demonize everyone in the elite which i thought was kind of interesting it's not (laughs) it's it's not a snowpiercer well, it, it, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's actually more nuanced than, Snorpe, than Snowpiercer. Imagine it's also, that. It's also not like I think it'd be the worst example because because the idea of 
you know, commenting on class uh, differences and wealth inequality is not really unique in kids' films, but it is rare when they actually do it well and sincerely. I think the worst example I've ever seen is the Lorax, <laughs> which is which is the most corporate bullshit product ever. And it's got, I mean, you're just your stereotypical businessman who, you know, just, it, I think he's bottling air. And oh, and it's, selling it's, it to it, people? Yeah, which, I mean, it's almost a common, to, I mean, I, you could convince me very easily that the studio actually cast that guy. Like, they were commenting on themselves in that character. And they were just like, look at fuck you we're getting away with, we're getting away with it we're, we're basically selling you bottled air we're yeah and uh, I, I mean for christ's sake the muppets made fun of it uh when they wasn't the guy called like tex i don't know the the rich oil guy it was named like tex batman or something like that <laughs> the muppets like i mean this is a uh, the idea of the oppressive upper classes is something that's been addressed in kids films before, but it's, it's kind of like Kubo. It's rare that it's done with as, as much humanity as I, I feel like it's done here. Obviously the, the main villain, what was his name? Uh, the main villain in box trolls, box trolls. Um, Oh, um, it's a weird name. Snatcher was what they called him. Okay. Snatcher's easy. Yeah, yeah. Snatcher's his last name. I guess his full name is Archibald, Archibald. Penelope Snatcher. And he's also a crossdresser, so that, you know. And this actually segues right into the, the most surprising thing on a second watch. Ben Kingsley is fucking amazing in this I, movie. I, I, it I cannot be understated how I, wonderful his performance is. I consistently forget it's Ben Kingsley. I know! it's. I, it just reminds me of what a amazingly talented actor Ben Kingsley is and how much range he he has. I mean, it, at least in his voice in this, he's chameleonic. And it was one of the most exciting things about just listening to him talk. And he does, like, he does a... This is one of the one of the hardest things of any voice actor. And they they go over this in I, I, I Know That Voice, the documentary, mm-hmm. which is really good. But he's... He has this voice of Archibald Penelope Snatcher, and in the movie, Snatcher has to change his voice to act like he's a woman. So what you're getting is Ben Kingsley creating a voice that's a variant of a created voice. It's multiple layers of performance going on at once. Exactly. So it's not just it's not just you have Ben Kingsley acting like a guy and then you have Ben Kingsley acting like a girl. No, he's acting like this very specific guy acting like a girl. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's uh It's fucking Gandhi, man. <laughs> it is Gandhi. It's also uh, it's, ex, it's extern from Schindler's List. No, it's it's also uh, God. What was it? What was his name? Oh, oh the Mandarin. The Mandarin, <laughs> fucking a. <laughs> uh, the Mandarin. Fucking Iron Man. I, I would rather just eat an actual Mandarin. <laughs> oh yeah, they really. Come on. I can appreciate that in in 2013, another portrayal of the crazy 
you know, Muslim terrorists probably isn't what we need as a society right now. But if that's the case, just don't give us the Mandarin at all. Like, well, well or replace it. Like, if you're gonna do the big fuck you, that's fine. <laughs> but just replace him with something worthwhile. Yeah, not, I know. In this case, he not wasn't. Whatever the fuck, Guy Pierce was. Not Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce should never be the payoff. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <sighs> oh, come on. I mean... No, no, I'm not... Uh, that, that's just a brilliant way to put that. I'm, I'm not <laughs> disagreeing with you at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. I don't... Oh, go ahead. Listen, I don't know what... I don't, I don't know... I, I don't know at the top of my head what sort of competition there was in the actor race for, for this year. I seriously think if Ben Kingsley didn't get at least consideration, that's bullshit. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'll back you on that. But this is also, I mean, look, they're still not acknowledging motion capture performances. Oh yeah, no, they're not. It's 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 voice. I mean, and Andy Serkis will go down in history as one of the most deserving actors of an Oscar who never got one. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. I'm not saying it's bullshit just because of him. It's bullshit that people don't recognize voice acting at all, even though there's so much amazing things you could do with so many amazing things you could do with it. And mm-hmm. this is just one of those things. And especially the lead actor race. Not that the lead actor race wasn't crowded, but the people who were nominated were bullshit this yeah. year. Yeah. This is the year of Eddie Redmayne, Steve Carell, and Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, you're right. This was like a legendarily bad year for Best Actor. Well, yeah, I mean, for the Best Actor nominated, this actually had really great performances this year. With, oh, and it, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, with Ray Fiennes and Tom Hardy oh, and Jake well, Gyllenhaal. Yep. You know, lots of deserving people. Almost exclusively underlooked performances. Mm-hmm. And or, even um, a oh, lot of people... performances underlooked is not really a thing. Oh, yeah, David Oyelowo, too, from, from Selma. That's I thought that was right. one of the... yeah. I thought that was one of the few nominations that Selma actually deserved, to be quite honest. Yeah, I know you weren't very high on it. Uh, as well, a, it as I, I, wasn't, I wasn't low on it either. It was just a pretty formulaic biopic, I thought. Sure. I mean, I mean perhaps... I mean, it's weird to call a, a biopic about... Um, Martin Luther King. About Martin Luther King. It's weird to call a biopic about Martin Luther King hero worshipy because if there's one hero you're going to, like, worship on screen. Yeah. It might as well so, fucking be Martin Luther King, but I, still... I okay. It seemed like because they, they addressed some shortcomings in his personality, but also overlooked it. it you know, it's... I, I felt like they were trying there to... There were, like, real ramifications for it. Exactly. Like, they... I think they brought up like I think his unfaithfulness to his his infidelity to his wife, and then they sort of forgot about it, <laughs> and we're like, yeah, but he was still awesome. And it's it's like, like they bring it up for the sole purpose to humanize it, but they don't really do anything with it. They don't really take it to heart. Yeah, they almost bring it up for the sole purpose to say that they brought it up. You know, they're like, oh well, we we gave a full picture of the man. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's like, I wouldn't have blamed you if you were just hero worshipping on Martin Luther King. Like, no one's going to come out and say, well, you know, Martin Luther King, he actually cheated on his wife. And it's like, yeah, that totally undoes everything he did. Well, I guess the civil rights movement is a sham. Yeah, civil rights are bullshit now. You now have recording of me on this podcast saying, 
that the Holocaust is not <laughs> true, and that civil rights are a sham. I own you now. What have I given you? <laughs> Use this clay to mold my persona, James. <laughs> um, Which, th there was a weird tangent on Selma, but... <laughs> that sure was. Uh, back to box trolls. And Ben Kingsley doing awesome things. Um, he did give a great great performance, I agree. Um, and it, it's even greater because I didn't even think to mention that because I totally forgot it was Ben Kingsley. I know! So um, good. The, and uh, Bran Stark is in this as... Uh, <laughs> says eggs oh. uh, and uh, you know he's alright he's about as good as he is in Game of Thrones um, which is to say eh. uh, <laughs> and uh, Elle Fanning because Dakota is too old by this point yeah um, I mean isn't that why she gets cast in everything oh <laughs> whoa Damn, I'm an asshole. I'm, it's late. I'm tired, and I'm just angry because she's more successful than me. <laughs> there's, an, there's another actress. She's in The Magnificent Seven. Wait, Elle Fanning is? No, no. I said another, another this actress. Other, this other actress. This, okay. this other actress is in um, the... I just said it. The Magnificent Seven. And she, I guarantee you, is totally she's succeeding very well on the fact that she is almost the spitting image of Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, wait, Britt Robertson? No, I, I th her name is, uh... Whatever. Uh, Haley Bennett? Oh, okay. Because I always... I thought Britt Robertson from Tomorrowland <laughs> is also very... Oh, yeah, but she's much younger. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, this person... It's so much so that, that I... I saw this and I was convinced that uh and and she's in the girl on the train too watch both uh, of these both of those trailers and tell me that that's not fucking jennifer lawrence <laughs> i mean when the pressure of being jennifer lawrence gets to be too much sometimes you just gotta disappear <laughs> <laughs> i get it <laughs> anyway two weird tangents we're not even talking about the box shows at all this this segment I, I, sucks we so suck well, this is this is what happens when we do third segments. I yeah, when they go so late like this. I I will say that I mean because the thing is I I didn't actually have a ton to bring to the box trolls conversation. I I, I do think that is it, it, you're right. It is an interesting allegory for, uh, you know I mean yes it definitely evokes images of pre World War Two Europe, um, and and you know has interesting class commentary. In a much more nuanced way than you would expect from a film titled Box Troll that totally looked underwhelming from the outset. Um, like I said, I still think this is probably um, uh, Leica's worst film, but I haven't seen Paranorman yet. Mm -hmm. um, and but that's again, that's like you know, it's saying it's the least. I, I should say it's the least good. Um, it's <laughs> the, the least good movie. The least good movie they made, and I think it deserved to lose the best act, the, the best uh, um, animated feature award. But albeit to a different film than Big Hero Six, and so I, I guess that this to me is not so much about finding a masterpiece 
where <laughs> no one else was looking. But I guess it, like I just wanted to set the record straight that I do think that this is a film that's worth checking out. That I misjudged based on the title. That it has more going on in it, and um, I, I don't necessarily have a whole you know breakdown or analysis of it. But I do think that it is a film that's easy to judge before seeing it, and that is a surprise to actually experience. Yeah, and I would, I would also add that there's just a lot of really, a lot of really good pieces, I suppose. And then not to say, and they do create something bigger than themselves. But even if you look at a movie as some of its parts, these parts are really fucking funny. It's I true. mean, there's the, the, the there's this trio of thugs in that uh, Snatcher uses to to do his dirty work, and there's some of like the funniest like Three Stooges esque characters. Mr. I've seen on screen. Mr. Pickles and uh, 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 Mr. Tout and Mr. Gristle. Mr. Trout. Uh, yes, yes. Mr. Trout, yeah. Mr. Trout, Mr. Gristle. Mr. And Mr. Trout is the best because he's he's set, set up as this kind of like Ophi, um well, Ophi's probably the best word, but dim-witted henchman type but everything he says even though it's said in that that same voice you can expect from a character with those traits are really smart <laughs> like he picks up a box troll and he's like do you really think box trolls can understand the the duality of good and evil <laughs> and then throughout the movie he's slowly becoming more cognizant of the fact that he that they it, might be the bad guys yeah that they're the bad guys it, uh, there's a sketch from peep show where uh <laughs> Uh, these the two main characters they're like it, it, it was kind of like a I think it was peep it was something with anyway um, but they're basically playing Nazi soldiers and <laughs> and they're you know plotting out plotting out their next battle and then uh, you know the, the one guy's really into it and he's strategizing on a map and the other one just turns to him and is like hold on I just realized uh, are we the baddies <laughs> and they're like what what are you talking about I was like well, well, look at our helmets. <laughs> they have skulls on them. <laughs> and it's just this whole like slowly coming to the realization that you are the you are playing the villain in history. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of that, um, especially because uh, <laughs> and it was extra funny in box trolls because uh, Richard Ioade, I think. Mm-hmm. That's- plays Mr. Pickles and I know him from the IT crowd but he's also like a, a really he's actually a pretty good director um, he's made a few comedies uh, like uh, The Double and um, i actually not sure The Double's a comedy but anyway um, <laughs> and uh, uh, he just has this like it's, it's weird because it's a high pitched droll and it doesn't it's hard to describe without hearing it but it's like the most it's the most distinctive voice where, like, he can simultaneously sound really smart, really stupid. <laughs> oh, yeah, and sometimes he seems, like, it kind works. of sad and resigned. I, I, I really like his it, lines. It like, works. I, I know. I'm 60 to 70% sure we're still the good guys here. Just just two good guys in the world of evil. <laughs> Sus. <laughs> it, works. it works so well with his temperament. And that's sort of what I mean about the whole like comedy in this movie, and that's another reason why Box Trolls lends itself to be under well un- underappreciated because it's understated, and like nothing about it, is, it's really easy to dismiss on its face because 
you know, of its title, of its appearance as this weird children's movie. I, yeah. But it, it, the subtlety about it, as I said, if you could, if you blink, you sort of if you blink or turn off your ears or, <laughs> damn it, I'm I'm about to riff on. I'm riffing off a line unintentionally of Kubo. <laughs> The, the opening line. Yep. If you must blink. You must do it blink. Now. Do it now. Really, <laughs> damn, really fucking that, great line. That that hooked me. That hooked yeah. me immediately. I'm just like, what? Whoa. Okay. And and it's funny because then the film plays off on how he uses that to hook his actual audience in the in the movie. Um, and it kind of plays off on story. Like it plays off on storytelling techniques. That see, I think that's one thing that was missing from Box Trolls. You mentioned how it's you know if you judge a movie by the sum of its parts, it's a great film and i would agree with that but i also don't really judge a movie as the sum of its parts i judge it as a whole and i think box trolls i think the problem is the box trolls is the sum of many parts rather than like having a great governing theme and idea behind it like to make it like it doesn't have like the big bold beautiful statement that kubo does um and or even like just like the the you know the whimsy and beauty that Coraline did, uh, you know, intermixed with the horror. It's, it is to me, what what's holding it back for me calling it like a masterpiece is, I, I guess I am pretty far from calling it a masterpiece, but I, mm-hmm. I think it it's because I, all I can do with box trolls, all I feel I can really do with box trolls is isolate images or, you know, scenes or jokes or performances that I like. And that's about the, that's about the extent of it for me. I, I suppose so. I think it did function almost uh, kind of paradoxically as a as a character study of Snatcher. Mm-hmm. He he's almost the star you're of the right. movie. You're right. Yeah. And and that I really and that I really like, but I I don't think it handles it as well as it could have in that respect, because I mean, its whole allegorical approach can honestly be boiled down to Nazis are bad. <laughs> Right, which you don't really. I mean, but, it's really easy to to say that, of course. But then when you take it as a uh, as an approach sorry, to study face. his character, you then you see someone who traveled down this for selfish reasons, but under sort of understandable reasons. He's trying to access this society that's been denied to him, honestly, unjustly. You know, he there's mm-hmm. no reason that he shouldn't be allowed, you know, to hang out with these people to do the things that they do. But for whatever reason, he has been. And then he takes it so far that even at the end, when he's given an out, he still decides to eat cheese and ends up exploding. So he sort of does himself in. And I think that's very, that is profound, but it's also kind of a a, an appetizer or an afterthought of the movie. It's an unexpected tragic hero. Yeah. (laughs) Not really a hero, but tragic, tragic character. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, fair enough. Fair enough. It's it's a lot more layered than I think anyone going into it for the first time would expect. And that's really all I wanted to do when bringing no, me up too. the box trolls. Me too. I, I I bring up reservations because I'm comparing it to Kubo in my head because we just talked about it and I just saw it. You know, I saw both of them very close to each other. Um, so, pardon me if I sound overly negative on it. I actually do think it's a really great film that not enough. Well, people I mean, it's in, it's important to bring that stuff up in these segments, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but I do want to clear that I am also considering this a forgotten favorite. It's uh, because I do think it's underappreciated. I think it. I, I just want to, you know, recalibrate people's like. I, this is a film you should seek out and watch, and I think it's still on Netflix. So, um, no excuse not to. No excuse at all, unless is, it's not. On is Netflix. Paranorman on Netflix? I don't know, but if it is, then I'm a hypocrite because then I, I, have, uh, I haven't seen it, and I have no excuse. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, it is not. Okay, great. Woo, we're not hypocrites. Nope, and Box Trolls is so. So. Yep. Um, I'm relatively certain that we're still the good guys. Uh, I'm seventy seventy percent sure we're still the good guys. <laughs> have you seen our Have you seen our website? It's got skulls on. <laughs> <laughs> we should get some skulls. Uh, anyways, we have a good slate of movies coming up. I think next week we've decided on doing. Uh, don't breathe a new horror movie making the rounds and yep. paired with another movie that came out we're calling this our sensory deprivation episode because another movie that came out earlier this year released i think maybe directly to netflix or maybe had a very limited release before going to netflix called hush um which is about a, a woman who's a victim of a home invasion and she is deaf maybe whenever, a tad exploitive we'll, we'll <laughs> whatever i hear we'll whatever i hear that. hush I think of one of the best Buffy the Vampire Slayer episodes. One where... of the best episodes on <laughs> of a TV oh, show I know. ever. Oh, good. I'm glad you're familiar with it. Yeah, where it's it's almost in the for the main part of the episode, it's entirely silent, mm-hmm. and they have to express everything through body language, writing. Um, it's it's just one of them. It's just that's the show at its most fun and creative. Well, I think it's and, their only Emmy nominated episode too. Oh, really? I, I would be. I wouldn't be surprised if they got one for their musical episode as well. The musical episode was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I, I definitely put Hush in the top of yeah, of, honestly, of TV episodes ever. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I I've seen that a while ago, and I said that a while ago, so I don't. I'm not backing down anytime soon. <laughs> you know what else is a really great one is, and I'm, uh, this is the last one I'll mention because this is totally relevant. Is the body? It's where she comes home and finds her mom. Oh, oh. God, I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So fucking good. It's uh, one of the best shows ever made. I will, I will, I will go to the grave defending that. It has one of the best final lines. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it was the actual final line in the movie, and in, in, sorry, in the in the series, but it was it was one of them between Spike and Buffy. Mm, yep, yep. Uh, We've talked about this before. Yeah, it was so good. No, you don't. But thanks. But thanks. But yeah, but thanks for saying it or something yeah, like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. It's one of the best final lines. I can't quite remember exactly how it goes. But yeah. uh, anyway. <laughs> Details are important. Um Alright. So yeah. And then uh, after ne- uh, for fuck's sake, we're still doing the show. Um after uh we do the sensory deprivation episode. Um, the week after, we are planning to do Hell or High Water. Finally, it didn't come out uh, near us uh, last weekend, and I think it is coming out this weekend. But we're gonna uh, we're gonna try to keep our gonna, episodes more thematic. 
Yeah, we're gonna try. I just couldn't see doing them at the same time. Uh, it, it. I think we've done weirder, but you are right. We should try to be cohesive. Yeah, we're gonna do "Don't Breathe" instead because uh, some lady in James's theater thought it looked bad, and James wants to prove her wrong. <laughs> it was actually a guy, and no, I don't. Oh, really it was a guy. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought it was a woman. For <laughs> No, that's not why I want to see it. <laughs> we'll talk about that when we get there. I'm about joking, and that's that's it. We're gonna we're gonna go to bed. It's so fucking late. It's really late. It was a late show this week, and it's gonna be a probably equally as late show next week. But hey, but but, but that'll be fitting. I'll be more caffeinated then, and we're doing horror films. So I mean, you know, be in the right mood for it. And as always, thank you for listening.